0: This time, we'll be hearing from Mel Gosling, fellow of the Business Continuity Institute for over 15 years, owner of Mericon Limited, and all-around continuity veteran. Mel has a very practical approach to business continuity, having come from a background managing IT projects and leading technical teams. He's got a lot of crisis experience, both firsthand and from running exercises, and he was able to offer a lot of insight into the human thought processes that drive a lot of decision-making during an incident. Without getting too bogged down in labels, business continuity and crisis management are different things, although the distinction isn't always clear. I asked Mel how they overlap with each other, if at all.
1: Well, I mean, crisis management overlaps with business continuity as far as I'm concerned, in, in so much as they both um, deal with managing things that go wrong, because if there is a business continuity incident where somebody has to recover something, then that actually needs to be managed as an incident in the same way that the crisis management discipline manages an incident. But crisis management is also a discipline in its own right. It's been around since time immemorial, I would say, um, but business continuity is you know relatively new. Most business continuity people or most people who uh, who deal with crisis management think that it's actually slightly wider than business continuity in so much as business continuity tends to be a disruption to operations, whereas crisis can include things that don't necessarily disrupt the operations of a company, like for example, um, something that affects your reputation. You can have crisis management without business continuity, but if you're going to implement business continuity, you have to have crisis management in place the skills that you need for crisis management um, are required for business continuity.
0: So crisis management and business continuity are distinct but closely related practices, where continuity centres around preserving physical and operational means of production throughout the disruption. Crisis management is broader and often more immediate activity that continues long after business usual operational conditions have been restored. Mel's example of a PR crisis is a good use case to better understand this distinction. It might not immediately interrupt production, but if left unattended, it'll significantly damage the survivability of an organization. We talked a lot about crisis management through the lens of public relations, particularly around the persistent failure of many organizations to develop a robust social media response in the wake of an incident. I asked Mel how crisis management practices were evolving.
1: Yeah, I think it's developed a lot because companies are now much more exposed to uh, to bad publicity, particularly since the rise of social media and, and, and all the tools on the internet. A story now will spread absolutely phenomenal speed around the world if there's some kind of reputational problem with an organisation, whereas it didn't before. I think previously, in the, the skills for crisis management were very much around being able to manipulate the uh, the media. And the media essentially were sort of the big newspapers and the TV and the radio stations. They were the only people that published news. But nowadays, everyone with a smartphone is a news publisher. So maybe 30 years ago, you had to deal with five or six big organisations. Now you've got to deal with 8 billion people, um, which gives you a, a, a bit of a problem.
0: The usual response after acknowledging a potential crisis situation is to create a response plan and run an exercise to test how effective it is. However, PR crises today evolve at phenomenal speed, and that's hard to faithfully recreate in test conditions. A misjudged public statement following an incident can make bad situations much, much worse. It's one of the few risks that all organizations face, and yet it remains one of the most difficult to meaningfully rehearse.
1: Yeah, it is a lot more difficult. You do need to have, if you're going to rehearse that kind of thing, somebody who can provide you with a lot of input from social media. An example of that um, recently was a, an exercise I did for a, for a major client where we actually had somebody from their own press office pretending to be the press and it has to be somebody who's got a very lively imagination and is not afraid of upsetting people. Because if you're going to do this thing properly, you need to get some quite nasty and caustic social media comments coming into uh, an organisation, and the top management usually of an organisation, and if they've never been exposed to it before, they find that a bit difficult to handle. So it needs somebody who's willing to do that to their senior management. Um, you don't find too many people like that, and it's a bit of a career, bit of a career-limiting option, isn't it? <laughs> You know, to suddenly pick up on something, let's say, that uh, the chief executive has said, and then turn it back on them and make him look an absolute idiot. is, uh, yeah. <laughs> But you need to be able to do that, because um, that's what happens in a real, um, real situation.
0: The importance of realism in crisis exercises is something that we'll return to shortly. But for now, I just want to acknowledge that this is a lot to ask from organisations without a robust social capability already in place. Convincing a resistant senior executive that social media not only need to be part of crisis planning, but that they need to be prepared to respond to simulated internet abuse isn't easy. Nevertheless, crisis planners need to bring any laggards up to speed as a matter of urgency. As Mel pointed out, learning crisis communications on the job is a recipe for disaster.
1: If you're a company in the public eye, like British Airways or, or Google or Amazon or somebody, um, then yeah, you need to be able to handle that quickly and effectively. Um, And you need to be able to take hold of the story and manipulate it in, in your direction, which is very, very difficult and requires skills that a lot of organizations don't really have. And to be honest with you, a lot of old time executives just aren't comfortable with the whole idea of social media. Um, I mean, it wasn't so long ago. In fact, it was three years ago. I ran an exercise for a big government institution. And um, we added in a lot of social media comment on the incident in the exercise. And they didn't really react to it. And afterwards, at the end and in the wrap up, I said, well, how many of you here actually have a Twitter account? And none of the people around the table did. And their view was, oh, this is, you know, a waste of time is Twitter. Only, you know, young idiots use Twitter. We don't use it. We're too sophisticated and intellectual. And that's an appalling situation to, to find yourself in with a group of executives who dismiss social media out of hand. Um, it's getting less common, but it does happen, particularly in the older, more staid um, areas where you've got, you know, people maybe in their 50s and 60s who aren't that comfortable with social media. Once the story's out there, you're not going to start to learn how to use social media and uh, grab hold of the story all in one go, right? That said,
0: operational fluency in social media doesn't instantly make crisis communication simple. If anything, there are more discrete elements to control. And crisis responders should enforce strict policies around the information flowing in and out of an organisation during an event. Proactive engagement with the public's response to an incident can buy you a lot of time and a lot of goodwill if it's sensitively delivered. But the speed of response is everything, and senior stakeholders can't possibly approve every engagement.
1: It's one of the difficult things to uh, to put in place for an organisation actually because with the social media response, you have to be fast um, so that means you've got to be on the front foot you know very very quickly. so you haven't got a lot of leisure time to uh, get a group of people together, put them in a room and talk about things and you know argue about what you're going to say. So you're putting in the hands of, of people in your press office or whoever's doing your social media team, you're putting into their hands the ability to actually go out and send a message on behalf of the company without the executive knowing exactly what they're saying. So yeah, there's a certain degree of um, delegated authority in that respect, but it sort of comes back to the, the old thing that you've got to get a team of people out and active quickly.
0: The key to social media crisis communications is the same as a lot of incident response. Crystal-clear policies, maybe tone-of-voice guidelines in this case, diligently observed by a well-prepared workforce. However, as Mel pointed out, just because people are good at following instructions after crisis doesn't mean that the same is true before a crisis. In fact, no matter how many policies are outlined beforehand, people are often very reluctant to escalate an unfolding situation into an incident, or indeed a crisis, for fear of false alarms and reprisals. And this delay can put you far behind the curve of an incident's consequences.
1: All organisations want to put down rules and procedures for what people should do, but in reality, none of those rules and procedures will ever meet the individual situation that someone's faced with. And I'll give you a simple example of it. Let's say you're on an IT help desk. The user rings up and says, uh, I can't see you to find one of my files. It seems, you know, a simple thing to deal with. It might actually be the first indication that you've got somebody hacking into your system and you're the victim of a of a cyber attack. Um, but the person on the help desk, as far as they're concerned, some user's lost a file. You know, they've probably deleted it or forgot where they've put it or something like that. And it's only after a little while, if they start to get an accumulation of these things, they realise that something odd's happening. They can only find that out, of course, if somebody is collating this information. You know, if you've got five different telephone operators taking calls, they won't be actually monitoring what's going on themselves. So they may get a higher incidence of certain types of calls, but individually they won't worry too much about it. Um, but somebody somewhere has got to be collating this and saying, hey guys, there's, you know, there's something going on. And by the time that's happened, you may have several hours have gone by and then he'll put it in the hands of a technician who starts to investigate it. And several hour, more hours may go by before he starts to think, oh, well, hang on, we've got a problem here. And you could find yourself half a day or a day behind the curve um, before somebody starts making a decision about what to do with the systems, like bring them down. You know, <laughs> So that's a real issue, is how you can get people on the front line Um, realizing that something that's happened is actually really serious and they should escalate it. You're up against all the time people not wanting to appear as if they're making mistakes, they try and hide problems. You know, it's a natural human thing. You know, I'll try and sort this out without telling my boss sort of thing.
0: That last point is really important. Noticing the symptoms of a crisis does not always make you responsible for their resolution. Escalation, or at the very least, getting a second opinion is always preferable to delay. That said, at a certain level of authority, you run out of places to escalate, and that's where the difficult decisions and conversations start. And, as Mel found out when he was IT manager for an insurance company, insisting on a responsible course of action at the cost of uptime isn't always received well.
1: Let's say you're maintaining an engine in an aeroplane, you're a maintenance person, and you realise you haven't maintained something properly, in the engine before the plane takes off, do you tell somebody and say, look, I haven't done my job properly, we're going to hold this aircraft back for half an hour while I do this work? Or do you say, well, I don't want to tell anyone, let's hope it's okay. You get that in IT quite a lot, particularly with with technicians who probably realise they haven't done something, or skip a certain number of steps, like they're introducing a new computer programme or an upgrade to it. They haven't properly tested it, but they know it's needed, so they skip the final testing of it. And I've been personally... Uh, involved in that kind of thing, where it brought the whole of a a major company's systems down. I ran IT for a big insurance company. I was in work at about 8 o'clock one morning, and my operations manager came in, and he said, well, he said, we've got a problem. Um, One of the overnight jobs that we ran has failed. But it's not just failed, it just did the wrong thing, and we've actually posted hundreds of transactions to the wrong account as a result of this work. And he said we really need to roll it back and and fix it and do it again. And to do that I had to stop everybody in the company using the systems. I did. I took that decision. I said, Well look, we'll bring the systems down, we'll fix this thing and within about five minutes the chief executive rang me up and and threatened to fire me unless I put the systems online. (laughs) This is And I said, Look, I can't I'm sorry. I said I'm not gonna do it because if we don't correct this it's gonna get worse. Anyway He said, you better be right. Anyway, uh, I was in the end. But the root cause of this was one of my programming staff had actually done some work, a change to a system, and he had failed to test it before he put it into production. Um, So it was that kind of human error. And he hadn't actually told anyone. We found out about it subsequently when we actually went back and analysed what had happened. Um, And I think that's fairly common. Um, People make mistakes. They don't like to tell anyone. They hope it'll be okay. It was cutting a corner. It was cutting a corner. But I was under enormous pressure to actually you know, bring the systems up and let them run and, and fix it in the background, which would have been disastrous. And that sort of thing, pressure you come under now. I mean, If you're under cyber attack, there may be you know, pressure to keep the systems up while you deal with it. You'll find that in, in a lot of things. I mean, um, you may find a manufacturing company, for example, there is a problem on a production line. But to fix it, you've got to stop the production line Uh, So that's downtime. And in manufacturing, you really don't want downtime. It costs money. So there's a lot of pressure to fix things while you're keeping things running.
0: It's exactly that pressure that makes people myopic in a crisis, leading to suboptimal decision-making and potentially harmful courses of action. Mel had a great story about a government organisation that got so caught up in the pursuit of clear communication during an exercise that had the situation been real, would have caused a PR crisis.
1: A large government organisation, and we were running an exercise for them uh, based on a cyber attack. And essentially what we were really trying to do in terms of the uh, exercise was find out how their disaster recovery team for IT would handle the threat of a cyber attack and when it actually turned into reality, how they would escalate that issue and, and how they would deal with the attack. So we started off the exercise by feeding in a lot of small failures that were happening to their systems uh, through the help desk. So they had over a a period of time a build-up of information about something was going severely wrong. So once the disaster recovery team realized that what we were giving them in the exercise was a cyber attack, they then had to make the decisions to bring all the systems down. Now, for some reason, they couldn't just bring the systems down. They had to ask all the users to log out of the systems. And they had about 4,000 users. And the question then arose, well, how how are they going to communicate that? And somebody came up with a great idea that the easiest and fastest way to do it was to uh, make a Tannoy announcement to say that they were suspected there was a suspected cyber attack, and would everybody log out of the system immediately? The only problem was they didn't think about passing this through their communications team, Um, so they just decided to go ahead and make that announcement. Now, in reality, had they done that when there was a cyber attack, they didn't remember that at any one time there were large numbers of press people actually on the premises. So members of the press would have heard that this big organization was under cyber attack, and... That information would then have shot around the world really quickly, within a matter of minutes. That would have caused them huge reputational damage. Now, had they brought the communications team in and said, look, this is what we want to communicate, the last thing the communications team would have done would have made a public announcement. So it was a, a group of IT managers essentially making decisions on communications and getting it wrong, getting it badly wrong. Now luckily it was an exercise, and they have learnt from that, so that if it does really happen in future I would hope that nobody decides to make a, a public tannoy announcement of the fact they've got a problem.
0: Broadcasting an announcement throughout public spaces that your IT infrastructure is under cyber attack seems like an obviously inappropriate response in hindsight. But in the immediacy of the incident, it also probably seemed like the fastest way to disseminate important information. Humans make bad decisions in times of stress. This is something that came up time and time again throughout our interviews. A lot of crisis management seems to be about unlearning very instinctual responses to danger or disruption in favor of pre-planned steps that may even feel counterintuitive at the time. Mel told me about an organization whose windows were blown out in the Bishopsgate bombings and the questionable response by the managing director who, at the time, probably just wanted to help.
1: Their offices were, were badly damaged, I mean the windows were, were blown in and the place was a, a mess really. And instead of actually then sitting down and doing the things that the MD should be doing, like making decisions and organising things, this particular MD sort of rushed out and uh, went to the nearest hardware store and managed to get some brooms and dustbands and brought them all back and started cleaning the office up. Which really would have been uh, better left to, uh, to cleaners, essentially. Uh, and he should then have been dealing with the bigger, more difficult issues that he was employed to handle, and that actually is a quite a typical reaction i've seen before that people feel they must do something and they will do something that's immediately in front of them that they feel they can make an impact on rather than actually um, doing the jobs they're supposed to do and For somebody like a, a managing director or chief executive it's to stand back and organize things um, not to uh, not to get involved in the small detail.
0: Now, it's obviously not the sweeping up of broken glass that's doing the harm here. It's the inaction, and it's the things that aren't getting done otherwise. One often forgotten activity in the immediate aftermath of an incident is to record any steps taken for insurance purposes. If you've got your um, premises damaged by
1: fire or flood or whatever, um, you might decide to try and fix the whole thing yourself and you know, bring people in to actually you know, recover things and mend things without thinking about the implications for insurance, for example. And one of the first things you need to do is, is contact an insurance company to start talking to them about what you're insured for and what they would recommend and what they would do. Because if you don't do that, you could end up by finding you have to spend a lot of money um, out of your own pocket that you thought was coming from an insurance company. Or you might have made a decision that they thought
0: caused a greater problems and they wouldn't cover you for it. We're going to return to the importance of note-takers at the end of the episode, but for now it's worth emphasizing. Recording the steps you follow in a crisis is almost as important as the steps themselves. Insurers and regulators want to know that you've accounted for the unexpected and not only did you take the right steps, but that you were following a plan and that if you deviated from it, then it was for good reason. Of course, there are instances where the most senior person present during an incident may act without the supporting wisdom of an established plan or the blessing of superiors. Crisis response requires flexibility, but not improvisation. And Mel had a good story about an overzealous facilities manager who took a bad situation and made it much worse.
1: There was an actual fire in in an office block when I was an IT manager some time ago. Yeah, we had a fire. It destroyed one floor of the building. And the facilities manager was the person who became aware of this uh, before anybody else. And, and he went in and started organising the recovery and uh, deciding what to do uh, without bringing anybody else into the picture. And uh, this fire was in the middle of the night. And um, when we came in in the morning, we found out that he'd actually made decisions that we wouldn't have made and we thought were, were, were wrong. And we actually then had to start to unpick what he'd done in, in uh, various areas. He should have actually referred the thing to the crisis team before making decisions. He tried to handle it by himself. but all the best intentions, but uh, it causes problems. One of the things uh, he did, he brought in a team of people to actually sort out the plumbing in the building because the central heating had been damaged. Now, this fire was on the fourth floor. I actually had um, a data centre on the third floor, so it was just on the floor below where the fire was. And fortunately, the computers weren't affected by the fire, because it was contained to that floor above. But he actually brought this group of contractors in, and they started clearing up and sorting things. And one of the things they did was cut some water pipes, and we actually had our data center flooded by water and that caused us to implement our IT disaster recovery plan. Now, had he talked to the rest of the team about what to do, we would have advised him that the last thing we wanted to do was start bringing plumbers in, playing around with water above our data centre. Yeah, it wasn't good news. We were all relieved that the, uh, the data centre was saved, and then it flooded.
0: <laughs> Note taking is an under-championed, specialised skill. That's not to put people off. Having someone recording actions is the most important thing but it's also a skill worth investing in, both for coordination purposes and, as Mel explained, to protect yourself in any subsequent review or investigation.
1: There are two aspects to this. One is the note-taking so that after the incident you can go back and, and look and see what happened and, and learn from it, or if you're working for some government-type institution, you can survive the public inquiry. So that's what I call a defensive capture, where you're capturing who did what, when, so that in the subsequent investigation you can... Uh, you can find out what happened and, and see if people did the right thing, but allied to that is also what I think is more important: is the fact that uh, when you're actually handling a crisis, a lot of information's coming in. You're dealing with some of it. You're making some decisions. You're parking some things for later, and really, everyone who's involved in that crisis, in, in terms of the team sitting around the table need to be fully aware of, of what information has come in, what you've done about it, what you've left till later, what decisions you've made, um, so that everyone in the room um, you know, is up to speed with what's going on. Um, and in a fast-moving crisis, that's, that's pretty difficult. Uh, and I've seen people try and do it by making notes on whiteboards, having technological solutions, um, but I've rarely seen it done well. I've only seen it done well once actually, Uh, they did it using an Excel spreadsheet and it was somebody who was very good at manipulating information and displaying it in spreadsheets. Normally it's something that uh, I find organisations just get badly wrong or don't do properly and can often lead to a lot of confusion in the crisis management team. Uh, it's, It's a hard skill and I think people need to be specially trained to do it.